Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and medicine. Today's topic is using storytelling to teach medicine. Our speaker is Dr. Ari Cement, who is the author of a new book entitled Breathless Tales, Life, Laughter, and Lessons. Ari managed the COVID ward at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach when I was a patient recovering from COVID in December 2020. Ari has spoken more times on this podcast than any other guest. Today, I want to learn from Ari about how he uses stories to teach his medical students, his doctor colleagues, and his nursing staff. I want to find out what he learned from his COVID experiences and why certain patients live because of sheer will. Buckle up. Ari, in your new book, you tell the story about how you almost did not get into medical school because of your poor performance on the English section of the MCAT. What happened? The first time I took the MCATs, I was convinced that I'm just going to ace the test because I went through high school and college and I was a straight A student. So, you know, why do I have to take a preparatory course when I'm getting an A in chemistry and physics, biology, it made sense that I would just ace the test. And all my friends were taking all these courses and doing the tests. I know it was arrogance, thinking that you're better than everybody else. And you really had to study for the test. People were telling me that, but I was very nonchalant. And then I went in the test and I remember freezing when I took the English part. I bombed it. It just took me a long time to read the questions. I got them right, but I didn't finish the test. So you took a gap year. I always tell my kids that life doesn't go in a straight line. Mistakes are made and you need to make the most of it. What did you do? So I took a year off where I did liver transplant. It was a great experience. I did a liver transplant at Mount Sinai in New York. And I taught at Yeshiva University as a chemistry TA. Your parents wanted you to be a doctor very badly. Did they put a lot of pressure on you after your MCAT hiccup? It was more than just a hiccup because not only did I do poorly on that first test, but then I was taking a repeat test in the summer. There was a lot of stress. My father would open up the mail and he would see that I got another wait list, another rejection. And you know, he was telling me, why don't you become a teacher? Why don't you, you know, do something else? You know, I was gonna take the test over in the summer. And I did great on the math and chemistry part. And then when it came to the English part, again, I froze. I had severe PTSD at the time. I just stood up, I ripped the test, and I said, I'm not doing this. And I left. And then I came home. I had to confront my parents. And they looked at me like, how did the test go? We were waiting two months for you to retake this test. And I said, you know what? I just couldn't do the English part. I just, the time, I can't do it. And then there's a story in the book. My father said, just take some time. Just go on the boat. Just take it easy. Clear your mind. And I put the boat in the water and I forgot to take out the damn bilge button, the hole. And as I undid the davits, the boat was literally sinking. I'm like, oh my God, this is an episode from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's it. The boat is going to be sunk. I just failed my MCATs the second time. I'm not going to medical school. I'm a complete failure. And then I was able to click on the front it just in the nick of time. Otherwise, the boat would have sunk. Your dad is also a leading pulmonologist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. How was your father-son relationship? And did he teach you to be a better physician? I worked with my father, who is by far a better clinician, diagnostician when it came to pulmonary. 
So it was just incredible to be able to witness that. I think I developed into a better doctor than what I started out as because I was with my father and also my partner, Robert Galvin. He's a great role model. He's more like a brother, best friend, father at the same time, very unique relationship we had. And my father, you know, obviously just a brilliant diagnostician and very good in, with his hands. And so basically, you know, that was easy. My dad was a cardiologist and he trained at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And he told me stories about the place that made it seem absolutely insane. The crazy patients, the mind-boggling situations every day. You also trained at Cook County. How was your experience working there and how did it compare with Mount Sinai in Miami Beach? I was in the old Cook County Hospital. It made you prepared for anything that you could possibly see. Mostly because you were everything on that patient. You had to do transport. You had to put the Foley catheter in. You had to be the nurse. You had to be the transport. You had to be the dietitian. You were everything that the patient had. And that was a great experience. Nowadays, doctors are sort of, a lot of them are prima donnas. They're spoon fed and they don't realize that there's a whole team that's needed really to take care of a patient. There was a great story in the book about a patient, a gang member. I'll never forget that. He was shot and he had severe pain. This guy was not a nice guy. He probably killed a few hundred people. I don't know. He, he looked really scary, but he was writhing in pain and I felt bad for him. And the neurosurgery team came by and they said, there's no indication for surgery because he's able to move his toes. So I remember I wheeled him down to get a stat CT myself. I wheeled him down to the CT scanner we reviewed it with the radiologist. I called the radiologist, came bedside. At that time, you had to actually see the film. You know, It wasn't a picture on your computer. And we reviewed it together. And you could literally see the bullet impinging on the spinal cord. So I called the neurosurgeon over as a medical student. I said, please, why can't you operate on it? You see it. He said, but there's no neurologic dysfunction. If he can lift up his toes, then we're not doing surgery. So I went back to him and I explained to him. I said, I know you're in a lot of pain. And I'm telling you, if you get that bullet out, you will not be in a lot of pain. But you know, you're going to have to sort of, you know, you know, maybe be a little weak on your right side. Yeah. So then he did. He said, I can't move my leg, doc. I can't move my leg. Stat, we got to take him upstairs to surgery. Of course, I transported him up. The surgeon looked at me and said, okay, Ari Cement, student doctor, Mr. You know, know-it-all, you're going to operate. And he made a, an incision line. He said, just follow the incision. And I did it for like the first 10 minutes. I made some of the cuts through the fascia. And I remember that. And, and then as soon as the bullet came out, he was no longer in pain. And you know he was very thankful. He didn't kill me. Ari, you ran the COVID ward at Mount Sinai, Miami Beach. When I was admitted to the hospital with COVID, I was your patient. You were incredibly kind and you also exuded confidence in that I would get better and quickly. So I immediately felt better. I think the doctor-patient relationship is very important. Next topic is being your own best advocate. I had a relative with COVID pneumonia who was struggling with low oxygen levels in the 80s. You told me at the time that the patient desperately needed monoclonal antibodies so that the lungs could be spared further damage. Unfortunately, the hospital had a set of rules that prevented access to that medicine. The COVID protocol required that a patient with oxygen saturation in the 80s must be admitted to the hospital but admitted patients could not get the monoclonal antibodies because the study for the use of monoclonal antibodies was performed only on outpatients. Tell us about your solution 
to this conundrum? That was a real unique period of time. However, it just didn't make sense. So doctors like myself would try to find ways to bend the rules to make it. The studies were designed in a certain way, so there's no evidence-based reason why you would benefit by having outpatient monoclonal infusion because the study was done in a hospital setting. But you and I and anybody smart would know, okay, what's the difference where you get the treatment? You just need to get the treatment as fast as possible. But for hospitals to get reimbursed, part of it is a cash problem. For the benefit of the audience, the original study for the monoclonal antibodies was outpatient only. The federal government refused to pay hospitals for admitted patients. Ari came up with a solution. Get the antibody injection, but don't get admitted to the hospital. And stay home for a couple of days, and if necessary, then later get admitted to the hospital. But the antibodies worked as planned, then you're all set. With my relative, the patient never had to be admitted because the antibodies kicked in with a supplement of some heavy-dose steroids and oxygen. Nothing is better than healing from home with Ari on standby. Next topic is why was the original alpha virus so deadly? Was the problem that alpha caused havoc on the lungs? The mortality of COVID, very rarely did I have a patient come in, you know, oh, severe diarrhea, dehydration, and uh, that's why he died from COVID. It was mostly pulmonary related. We heard that comorbidities with heart, liver, kidney disease also was problematic. Why was that? I think the comorbidities you mentioned were important, but even more than that, obesity was the thing that we saw, obesity and diabetes and hypertension. Why was obesity such a problem with COVID? Why did it increase mortality so dramatically? It wasn't that surprising because they're typically not in the best shape and they're hard to ventilate. But I don't know the exact reason why. But every time, every patient that did poorly, somebody said it early on, like, I feel like COVID was against fat people. In the ICU setting, there was one time I could remember that all 25 beds, every single patient was an obese patient. So it almost felt like, oh my God, this is a ward of uh, obese patients, you know? One aspect of COVID, it was the body's response, not the virus that was killing people. The body overreacted, filling the lungs with fluid. That causes pneumonia and a collapse in oxygen levels. Steroids are fabulous drugs because they can slow down the body from attacking itself. What was the magic weapon? Decadron. We were a cutting-edge hospital in the sense that you know, our infectious disease doctors were incredible. Uh, Dr. Tuda, Dr. Rivera, Dr. Camps, Dr. Isabel. I mean, they were great. They really took charge from the minute the patient came in. Other hospitals did it too, but we combined it with steroids very early on, whereas other hospitals says, oh, you can't do that. It's going to cause a GI perforation. It's going to cause severe immunosuppression. But we noted that it really created a suppression of the inflammation to avoid ICU admission a lot of times. Sure enough, within a month, everybody was doing that high-dose steroids. In retrospect, the benefits of steroids seem obvious. Why were high-dose steroids not part of the original drug cocktail? The answer to your question is that some of the early data from China were really misleading. So if you look in the very first studies on ARDS and COVID, which I studied right from day one, you'll notice that the patients that got steroids early did worse. So everybody here is like, don't give steroids to your COVID patient. Don't give steroids. 
From a medical ethics perspective, vaccine makers could not purposely expose patients to COVID to see if the vaccine worked. Given the need for a working vaccine and the ongoing mortality of COVID, was that a good decision to only expose patients to COVID naturally? They could have done it the other way with a deadly disease. At that time, the mortality was thought to be greater than 10%. And they also didn't know that young people would do better than older people initially. So it would be very hard to have your inclusion criteria early on because the data wasn't so clear who was better, who was worse. Also, you would have had to have so many patients in the younger population because people that were younger actually didn't get so sick if they got COVID. You wouldn't see a mortality benefit. So the power, you would have needed thousands and thousands of volunteers, which you would not have gotten at that time. I know that they tried some early studies with people that wanted to be exposed. I had COVID a few times and have had COVID shots and multiple boosters. Should I get another COVID booster? The CDC now recommends another booster for COVID. I was just finished my ICU rotation and I have seen more patients with problems from a COVID booster than I have had with COVID pneumonia. At this very point in time, it could change. You have to be very open-minded. I believe if you had so many COVID shots already, you had COVID already, you have to really weigh the benefits of whether or not you really need the COVID vaccine. I am not a CDC expert, but I am a pulmonary critical care doctor, and I'm just saying what I see. I see COVID pneumonia for sure, but it is interesting to me that I see quite a bit of COVID vaccine-related side effects like myocarditis. I was the first proponent of one, two, three, and even four COVID vaccines. But now I am a little skeptical myself. Should I get this year's flu vaccine? The flu vaccine is more tried and tested over the years. And I still you know, get the flu vaccine. It's actually mandatory for the staff. Should I get the pneumonia vaccine? If you're older than 65, you should get at least one. And if you have a comorbid condition such as asthma or COPD, you should get it even before 65. And then another one when you're over 65. Pneumonia vaccine doesn't necessarily save you from getting the pneumonia itself. You can still get the pneumonia. You should not get as sick if you do develop the pneumonia. The pneumonia vaccine has a bunch of different serotypes or antigens included in that vaccine that cover all 23 different types of pneumonias. So it's in one shot. Your patients who had severe COVID pneumonia, are they experiencing long COVID? Do they have permanent damage to their lungs? Yeah, I see a lot of the long-term consequences for COVID pneumonia still get the post-COVID syndrome that's still out there. Most of the patients with pulmonary fibrosis are actually surprisingly getting better and better slowly. It's not a quick fix. Some of the patients with severe fibrosis actually are living a normal life, but there are still people with severe morbidity. Next topic is the doctor-patient relationship. My father told me that when patients are in the hospital, they sense that no one wants to touch them and they feel like a leper. My dad made a point to touch the patient's hand to make them feel comfortable and have an emotional connection. Nowadays, it's trickier to make the doctor-patient relationship because holding hands and touching a patient could be misunderstood. Sitting on the bed, sitting near a patient, that's an effective way to start that patient 
doctor relationship, also making eye contact and showing a genuine interest in the patient's history, their upbringing, those sort of things are very important. The problem that we're seeing in hospitals in terms of the patient relationship with the doctor is mostly that the hospitalist takes care of the patient in the hospital as opposed to their primary care physician who really knows the patient. So nowadays, a primary care physician admits the patient, but the care is taken over by some person who never met the patient. So your father in the olden days saw the patient, admitted the patient, took care of the patient. We have to do a better job as doctors to establish some sort of relationship early on. The best way to do it is by physical cues and emotional. Based on my experiences as a patient here at Mount Sinai, your nurses are excellent. Do doctors help in their training? Do the nurses help train the doctors? And what is that interaction that produces such excellence? Okay, I love that question. That's the best question of the day because I think doctors get way too much credit. So Larry Bernstein said, Ari Cement, you saved my life. Or Claudia Tudor, the infectious disease, you saved my life. But the reality is I didn't do anything. I might have ordered tocilizumab or might have ordered Regeneron. I think nurses don't get enough credit for the work that they do. Rarely do you say, hey, to the nurse, oh, you saved my life. But the reality is the nurses here, especially during COVID, were beyond heroic. What makes a great nurse? A great nurse is somebody who questions a doctor to try to understand the thought process and work together, teamwork and communication. A great nurse is somebody who communicates effectively my success here at Mount Sinai, especially, was really 1,000% contingent on my relationship with the nurses in the ICU. The first thing I teach the fellows that I train here and the residents, you always have to show respect to the nurses and show them that you value them, try to teach them because they are the ones taking care of the patient that you're you know, trying to help. So the congeniality, that camaraderie, that relationship is the backbone of taking care of patients. How do you train your fellows? I hope to show them that there is a value of evidence-based medicine. They have more years as a practicing physician. But what will make me a better doctor is having these experiences and remembering and, and recollecting them and going over and reviewing them. If you don't review the things that happened to you, then what was it for? What's the takeaway message? When you have evidence-based medicine, when you could read a study from the New England Journal of Medicine, so you have to focus now in your training to learn what studies are out there so that you could get ahead of the game by looking at other people's experiences and boom, you're ahead of the game. My dad loved to go to medical conferences and he would go and listen to the various presentations. And then when he returned to Evanston Hospital at his cardiology meetings, he would present what he had learned at the conference. How do you educate your colleagues? That is the second best question of the day. When you have the same people doing the same things for many, many years, you're going to just do the same thing that you were trained to do. One thing that COVID taught us is the power of reaching out and seeing what other people are doing and being open-minded. Reach out and say, oh, I heard you're using you know, a rotational bed for COVID. How's that experience going? And how do you learn across disciplines within your own hospital? I'm a fellowship director, so I'm always constantly doing conferences and grand rounds. 
but we also have meetings. We have three meetings a week amongst the fellows and the attendings, and we talk about different things. Every attending has a different vantage point, history. You know, we have one doctor here who trained at Montefiore, another one, Texas, and another one from Boston. So, you know, you, you use those connections and you review. Some longevity doctors want to do additional tests when you have no condition, like full body scans. And oftentimes when you do these full body scans, something's going to show up. My father opposed getting these full body scans. He said, we'll find something. Odds are it's nothing and it can either drive you crazy or result in a procedure you don't need. What are your thoughts on body scans? This is your third best question of the day. This is an amazing, important, and very important question because on one hand, you want to diagnose early. On the other hand, you don't want to have overdiagnosis. Over eight years ago, I was asked to give a discussion on lung issues in women. And so I went and I gave a symposium. I showed them different things about lung cancer and asthma and COPD. And one of the things I mentioned is that if you're a heavy smoker, you should get a screening CAT scan of your chest. And two ladies rose their hand. They said, really, if you're a heavy smoker, you could get a low-dose CT of your chest? If somebody is a 20-pack-year smoker and they quit within the past 15 years and they're over 50 years old, they should get a screening CT. I bet you there are some listeners here on your show today that will get a screening CT. And sure enough, it will find a nodule. It doesn't necessarily mean it's cancerous. Two ladies rose their hand, sisters, HK and IK, very nice ladies. They came to my office afterwards because they both had lung nodules. They both had lung cancer. From that meeting that I had, I gave it on the topic of women issues in lung, two patients, one had stage one lung cancer and she did fine. She had a resection, no problem. The second one, already it was stage three cancer. So she needed chemo. She lost her hair. Beautiful lady. She looked like Julia Roberts. And then I saw her after the chemotherapy. Thank God she's still alive. Eight years later, she's on some immunotherapy now. So things have changed. Lung cancer is a whole new different thing nowadays. Eight years later, had she not come to the conference, she would have been stage four, potentially, when they found it out. And it would have been game over. But the point, going back to your question, really, there are definite indications for screening CAT scans. The problem with getting a full dose body scan when it's not warranted is you end up finding things that just give you anxiety and create issues. I think the one cancer that really irks me more than anything, we don't have screening for pancreatic cancer. And that bothers me. I'm in talks with a company from Israel that actually analyzes your breath and can hopefully see if you're likely to have certain cancers. One of them is being pancreatic. The future is going to be somewhere in a nasal test or a breath test for the screening of cancers, which is probably a better idea than doing a pan scan for right now, which could overdiagnose. Recently, whenever I try to make a doctor's appointment, I need to wait three to six months. Why is the demand for medical care outstripping supply? Surprisingly, it seems that there is a shortage of primary care physicians, yeah. so much so that there are medical schools opening up that fast track from med school residency right into internal medicine. You, could, you don't have to spend three years. You could spend two years in medical school and then go right into internal medicine because the, we definitely have a shortage. And not only that, we're seeing the burgeoning of concierge 
physicians. Everybody is becoming a concierge doc. Why are there also delays in seeing a specialist like a dermatologist? It's just a backlog because, again, a lot of them are working for hospital systems, so that removes a lot of the incentive. It reminds me of socialized medicine. We're moving more and more towards socialized medicine here, and that's the reason why there's more of a wait. The advantage for hospitals is that they get to hire less physicians and it covers the same amount of patient visits to the hospital, and they make a larger amount of everything coming in. So they sort of limit how many doctors they hire and maximize the profits. How is telemedicine working? We use it on a daily basis for elderly patients that can't make it to the office. That's one of the great things that came out of COVID. Does telemedicine work? It's very effective. You wrote a book on being a pulmonologist and your life as a physician. Why'd you do it? I did it because I meet the most amazing people. I have the best stories and I wanted to share it. I know if you don't write it down, you forget it. Nobody ever will hear it. It's like hitting a hole-in-one on the golf course, nobody to tell. Well, I would tell people. Exactly. The point is also that these are shared experiences. And any healthcare professional who reads these stories will know that, hey, this is exactly my story, but they never had the time to write it. Oliver Sacks was a famous neurologist, and he wrote books about his experiences And his colleagues who were in the same field could not believe he had access to these highly unusual patients. I heard that it was because he was such a good diagnostician that whenever a bizarre case would arise nationwide, Oliver Sacks would be the consultant. Why did you get to see so many interesting cases? The field of pulmonary critical care opens you up to seeing the most unusual diseases. Like one patient came in on a flight and had a ruptured cyst, a kinococcal cyst. It was a parasite in his lungs that popped. Of course, he's going to come into the ICU. He can't go on a regular floor. So I saw him and I took care of him, sent him to Bulgaria, where they do hundreds of these surgeries in a year, which is incredible. They don't do any of them here. Our surgeon here was going to take out the whole lung. Instead, he went to Bulgaria and they did a special procedure. We see things that are going to go in an ICU. I don't think Ari Cement sees more unusual diseases than any other ICU doctor in a busy area. What is interesting is that I trained in all different places. Here in Miami Beach, you see everything. 14 years ago, I saw a lot more HIV patients. So I had a great case. It's not in the book. Silicone embolism syndrome. And that was incredible. I should have made the book. I'm so mad. This patient came in. Oh my God, it was a great, great case. He came in short of breath, had a CAT scan that showed the opposite of COVID pneumonia. Really, it was the rind of the lung was all white. And then that showed you the power of taking a good history. So I went up to the patient and I said, hey, what's your story? So he said, oh, I just came back from a party. I was injecting my boobs with some silicone. So the story was he's a HIV, homosexual, had a party with a bunch of his friends and they were trying to get stronger looking breasts. So they all went and they injected silicone and he ended up having a silicone embolism from the injection and it went to his lungs and it caused this reaction. And oddly enough, I go look online and there's a case report four years before from Miami Beach, Mount Sinai Medical Center, same hospital. 
There's, of course, because this is Miami Beach. It's a party town. People do these interesting things. How is working as a pulmonologist different from other specialties? So a straight-up pulmonologist, it's a pretty nice specialty. You could just look at lung nodules and do procedures, bronchoscopies, biopsy, lung nodules, asthma, COPD. When you mix it with critical care, which is an extra year of fellowship, then that's when it can get more exciting or more difficult. And you see patients with all types of diseases, infections, things like septic shock, toxic shock, blood pressure issues, ventilator needs, pneumonias, COVID. What's the future for solving lung disease? Most of us catch a virus, we get a cough. It's an irritant, not deadly. We suck on some halls, we take some cough syrup, and then in a few weeks it goes away. What's the future? The future is definitely monoclonal antibodies. I mean, Regeneron, the miracle monoclonal antibody, which I think was the early MVP in COVID for sure, is the only thing that you took and then right away you were better. You had to get it early. But there are cases I had three weeks out, people fevers for three weeks, chest pain, shortness of breath, they got the infusion, boom, better. I mean, it was the most incredible medicine that I've ever seen. It definitely is changing the landscape. That's a very exciting field. Your dad is 80 years old and still practicing medicine. What motivates him to come to the office every day? He still has his faculties. I think anybody who can still work, they should try to keep themselves active physically and mentally. And he's still very sharp. I still call him up every day with a question on a patient and he guides me in the right way. I think in a general rule, being a critical care doctor, I have noticed that people that do retire... Die. Die. <laughs> like It's not a good thing to retire. Why does working matter to longevity? There's a famous story in the Talmud, a lady who is sick of life and she goes up to the rabbi and she says, I want to die. And she's asking for advice. What can I do? So the rabbi said, what do you like doing? She said, well, I, I go to the synagogue every day. So he said, don't go to the synagogue three days in a row. By the third day, she died. And the point of that is that where you're used to something, your body is used to it, and you're rote, you get into that rhythm, the emotional connection creates chemical connection, and you break that, there's a problem. There's also well-known studies about men who lose their wives. You know, they're more likely to die within the first year. In the longevity literature, they find that when men lose their wives, they're dead men walking. But when women lose their husbands, it has little influence on mortality. Those women who are very social live a long life, while solitary women die sooner. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's the same as that story. I always ask people that are older than 90, 95 and look great, what are they doing right? What is it about you? And more often than not, and I, it sounds trite. They mentioned being your patient. Yeah. It's true that I'm taking care of them. No, more often than not, it's I take things easy. I try to be always happy. Always try to be happy. Find happiness in what I have. I think that's interesting. I mean, people that are let things slide a little bit, those are the ones that seem to have a longer life. I'm a happy guy, but it's not like I think about being happy. I wake up happy. 
I'm not sure it's possible to be happy. I think you are happy. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, there's a genetic predisposition. But you could work on trying to be less... uh, Not sweating the small stuff. For sure. My maternal grandfather was a physician who trained at the University of Vienna Medical School in both general medicine and psychoanalysis. He studied under Freud and became a tenured professor at the Freud Institute at the university. My grandfather was both an internist and a psychoanalyst, and he believed that the physician needs to understand both the mind and the body to cure a patient. Ari, in your book, you told several stories about miraculous medical recoveries because of the patient's sheer will. Why do you think the will to live is critical to survival? It's just like tennis. You could be an amazing tennis player. You could be so gifted with skills. But if you don't have the mind, why is it that Djokovic is number one every year? Djokovic is not more skilled than some of these new guys coming out. It's greater than 50% in the mind. The same thing is with a patient. Two patients could have exactly the same disease. One gives up hope and the other one is hopeful. The hopeful patient will more than likely somehow survive, or the hopeful family will enable that patient to somehow survive. It probably has a hormonal and chemistry you know, balance, but it really can't be understated. The psychological impact of both families and patients, both negative and positive. I see both sides. And not only that, but there's also an influence on the team taking care of the patient. If there's a negative attitude, a negative feeling, there's more of a disconnect of the treating team with the patient. There's less of a will, a desire to help that patient get through because you know it's a more difficult experience. I end each episode with a note of optimism. Ari, what are you optimistic about as it relates to pandemics? COVID in a weird retrospect type of way was actually maybe a blessing in some way because we had some world unity. Nobody was messing around with other countries. I think that we'll have a very good response to the next pandemic, how to do things faster and just take care of it. Thanks to Ari for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast topic was antitrust enforcement with big tech. The speaker was my college roommate, Josh Sovin, who's a partner at Paul Weiss. Lena Khan is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and she's going after big technology companies. For the past 25 years, there was a bipartisan consensus that antitrust policy's goal was to maximize consumer welfare. We discussed why Lena Khan has abandoned that goal, and the new objective is to undermine big firms with significant market power, like Amazon and Google. I now want to make a plug for next week's podcast with Jeff Speck, who is the author of the classic book entitled Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. I want to learn from Jeff why walkable cities are better places to live, why bike lanes and active pedestrians make vibrant cities, and that speedy car traffic is problematic. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.